Well, recently I was going through some stuff in my basement and I came across uh, a handful of mixed CDs that I had made for my wife, Michelle, when we were dating. Now, I don't know if guys today still make playlists of love songs for their girlfriends, but uh, for those of us who grew up in the era of cassette tapes and burnable CDs, the the mixtape was a very important part of the process of wooing a young lady. Now, Michelle and I started dating in 2001, which was the year when Napster was at its most popular. So I want to promise you that every song on there was obtained legally. Yeah. Some of the songs on the CD were very early 2000s. There was a a little Savage Garden, some Ben Folds, some Nora Jones, and the only, those of you who are following me are in your mid-30s and you know what I'm talking about and you're like, yeah, I remember that. Or others of you are judging me for my musical taste. Well, guess what? She married me, so it was a good mix CD. Other songs on there were classics, L-O-V-E by Nat King Cole, My Girl by The Temptations, and of course, Michelle My Bell by The Beatles. Now here is the question. What would happen if I had given Michelle a mixtape with this song on it? go so well, would it? What about this one? Feel free to sing along if you know it. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it, you won't stand Unless you are Tom Cruise in the movie Top Gun, that song does not belong on your mixtape. It's a bad idea. You want songs of affection, songs about the delight that you have in your girlfriend, not songs about how distant that she feels. I mean, who would ever give their girlfriend a mixtape full of breakup songs? Well, apparently, the people who put together the book of Psalms. We are currently in a series on the book of Psalms, which we are calling Playlist, because that's exactly what we have in the book of Psalms. It's a collection of 150 different songs that were used by the people of Israel to worship God. Uh, These songs were used in national worship events in the temple. They were used in smaller gatherings in local communities. And they were used by people as they worship God in their homes with their family. And so this is like Israel's mixtape that they were giving to God. And honestly, it's the weirdest mixtape ever. Uh, I mean, if someone made you a playlist like this one, you would break up with them. Seriously, about 40% of the psalms are what we call laments, which at first can seem a lot like breakup songs with God. They're sad, they're angry, they're fearful songs that make it sound like the psalmist's relationship with God is on the rocks. And so when you come to the psalms, and you maybe only have a a shallow understanding of what is going to be there, and you expect things like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or bless the Lord, O my soul, and you come to every third psalm sounding like this, it's kind of a shock. So what I want to do today is dig into one of these lament psalms and try to figure out how it's working, what's going on, and see how we can make lament a part of our relationship with God. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Psalms, smack dab in the middle. We are going to be looking at Psalm 13. 
If you're taking notes today, you can also pull out the weekly welcome or uh, use the app on your phone. I know about 1,500 of you downloaded it in the last week, so a bunch of you have that. Go ahead and try it out. We will begin in verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? There's no easing into it here for the psalmist, for David. He starts off with four anguished cries of how long, O Lord, how long? This is lament at its purest because at the heart of lament is a cry of sorrow. Uh, Lament is an honest, raw expression of pain. The the psalmist is hurting and he lets God know about it in no uncertain terms. Uh, The psalmist actually identifies three different things that are troubling him. We're going to look at them in reverse order. Uh, Look again at verse 2. The psalmist describes an external threat. He says, how long will my enemy triumph over me? As you read the Psalms, you're going to frequently come across the language of enemies, which can be kind of disorienting for modern readers. It's kind of tricky to know what to do with it since most of us don't find ourselves praying these Psalms in a war zone. Uh, What I find really helpful, though, is to remember that the Psalms are poetry. That means that they use uh, emotionally striking imagery, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a literal description of the thing that you're praying about. Uh, These songs were written to be sung regularly all the time, even when there wasn't uh, an army encamped around the city. And and so the word enemy is a a poetic way uh, of referring to any kind of threat you might face. Uh, Sometimes it's a a literal person or a group of people that are out to get you. You, You've got a a racist or a sexist coworker. Uh, Your boss is unfairly pressuring you to retire early. Uh, Your family mocks you for your faith. But other times, the language of enemies is referring not to people, but to situations. Simply a metaphor to any kind of challenge, any kind of painful situation you might encounter. So for you, maybe it's, it's your parents' divorce. You know, your, your dad moved out recently, and it's just tearing you up. Uh, maybe you're in your, your first real job after graduating, and you are just drowning. You're not sure you're cut out for this whole adult thing. Maybe you're 35 and you are sick and tired of being the only single person in your group of friends, but you're not really sure how that's going to change. Or maybe last month the pregnancy test had two lines on it, but this week when you went to the doctor, they couldn't find a heartbeat. The language of enemies in the Psalms is about times when you look around you and things are just falling apart. You you are overwhelmed. Your circumstances are are beyond your control. You cannot handle it and you have no idea what you're going to do. You ever been there? You there right now? As a result of the external threat, we experience an internal distress. Here's how the psalmist describes it at the beginning of verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? You ever wrestled with your thoughts? You know what that's like? You can't focus on the work in front of you or the conversation that you're having because your mind just keeps going back to that problem that's hanging over you. You wake up in the middle of the night and your mind is racing and you cannot get back to sleep. Your emotions are all over the place. One minute you're losing your temper, the next you're just trying to hold back tears and an hour later you're just numb. Day after day I have sorrow in my heart. Any of you ever been depressed? I have. 
You know, when, when the sorrow isn't just sort of a, a passing thing, like, a, a, you know, you had a bad day and that was making you sad, but it just lasts and you don't know how you're going to get out of it. And even when you're having moments of enjoyment, the heaviness is still there. It's a weight you carry around no matter what else you're doing. Internal distress. But for the psalmist, that's not even the worst of it. Look again at verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, On top of it all, the psalmist is experiencing spiritual abandonment. You you ever feel forgotten by God? Like like when he's scanning the world, it's almost like he just sort of skips over you and goes on to the next person. He's, He's screening his calls. He's tuning out your cries for help. You have no sense of his presence, no evidence that he's doing anything in your life. He just feels distant and far away. There's an old term for this. It's called the dark night of the soul. And it feels like God has ditched you and you don't know why. You you sought God. You've confessed your sin. You've done all the things that people tell you to do and still nothing. What, What people don't always say about the dark night of the soul is it's not that rare. If you dig below the surface with most people who've been following Jesus for a while, they'll be able to tell you about experiences like this. For me, the reason we picked that song, the the silence of God, for our special music was because that's a song that I have listened to many, many times when I've been in seasons when I felt like God was silent and far away. What do you do when you're in that kind of situation? I mean, honestly, but most of us have no idea how to handle those negative emotions, that, that feeling like God is far away. What do you do when you're sad or angry or afraid? People don't t- talk about that all the time. They don't, they don't show us how we're supposed to respond, you know? And so you, you have thoughts. You say, okay, I'm following Jesus. Is, does that mean it's okay for me to be angry about my situation? Like, am I allowed to be angry at God? You, I, I read the Bible and it talks about joy. And, and I, I, I'm supposed to be thankful in every circumstance. Does that mean I should never be sad? It says that God will never leave us or forsake us. He promises to always be with us, but I don't feel like he's with me right now. So it means something's wrong with me. And people think these thoughts, but we don't say them out loud because we think we know what the answer is already. You know, if you're good and faithful, you're supposed to be happy and content and enjoy God all the time. I remember a couple of Christmases ago, I was in my church, and we were singing the hymn, Joy to the World, which is, is one of my favorite songs, not just for Christmas, but one of my favorite songs of all time. And we were singing a, a modern version of the song, one that we sing here at Christ Community Church, and it has a refrain that goes like this, joy, unspeakable joy, an overflowing well no tongue can tell, joy, unspeakable joy, rises in my soul, never lets me go. And as we were singing this, I was actually sitting in the balcony of the church, and I was looking down on the people that I knew there, and in the crowd, I could see two young women who had recently lost their mother to cancer. And there there was another woman who was struggling with a a chronic pain condition. And there was a, a man who was in a bitter custody battle for his kids. And there was another couple who had recently become legal guardians for their nephew because the child's mother was an alcoholic. And those were just the stories I had heard that week. And as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, can people really mean these words that we're asking them to sing? And I started to wonder how many people there felt frustrated or or confused or even shamed by those words. Like how many people would have felt better singing, sorrow, uh, unspeakable sorrow rises in my soul and never lets me go. You ever felt that way coming to church? 
are you supposed to do? You know, where the worship pastor gets up and says, well, let's just leave all our cares and worries at the door and just come in and focus on God. You think, I can't get this stuff off my mind. Am I supposed to just put on a happy face now and, you know, walk out the door and just pick up my sadness again? Like, and, you know, like nothing ever happened? Is there something wrong with me that I don't feel like singing a happy song? Well, it's clear here that the psalmist does not feel like singing a happy song. He, he cries out, how long? How long? He's saying, that's it, God. I've had enough. When are you going to do something about this? He's complaining. He's not content. He's not sugarcoating what he's feeling. It's interesting. When you actually dig into the Lament Psalms, you'll find out that Psalm 13 is actually one of the tamer Lament Psalms. Let me, let me read to you a couple others. Psalm 6. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? I'm worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping, and I drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Or just take a, a few verses from Psalm 88. I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I, I spread out my hands to you. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That that's actually how the psalm ends. There's no uptick of hope. It's darkness is my closest friend. Amen. That'll play on Christian radio. It's both positive and encouraging. <laughs> now, as I read this, some of you might be reacting the way a friend of mine did. She's going through a really hard time and she's, she's kind of angry about it. And so I, I suggested to her, I said, maybe you want to try and pray one of these lament psalms. And she read through it and she, she said, this honestly describes how I feel, but seriously, am I allowed to say these things to God? Like, is this okay? Like, like this, can't, this doesn't feel right. But it's interesting, there they are in the Psalms. It's the official songbook of the Bible. In both the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians, we are told, we are commanded, use the Psalms, pray the Psalms. These are the words of King David, one of the godliest people who ever lived. These words have been sung by millions of faithful Jews and Christians for 3,000 years. These prayers were prayed by Jesus himself. He sung these songs over and over again. These are prayers God wants us to pray to him. And I find this amazing. Seriously. I think the lament psalms are one of the best gifts God ever gave us. Because what would we do without them? I mean, if we're not allowed to express these negative emotions to God, we've really got two choices. We can either choose our feelings or our faith. And if we choose our faith, we end up denying our feelings, suppressing them and pretending like they're not there and trying to control them. And whenever they bubble up, we've got to feel guilty about them. Or if we choose our feelings, we end up walking away from God. 
And our, our sorrow and our anger and our questions become a barrier between us and him. Well, here's the good news. There are no unspiritual emotions. There are no unspiritual emotions. There are no emotions that are off limits for Christians. Uh, negative emotions are no more problematic than positive ones. God made all of them. But here's the important question about your emotions, no matter what they are. What are you going to do with them when they arise? Uh, because you can either let them drive you away from God, or you can let them drive you to God. But when you are angry, what you're supposed to do is this. You're supposed to let that anger drive you to God. You take the anger and you say, God, honestly, I am ticked off. This situation is making me so mad and I am frustrated that it seems like you're not doing anything. Don't lie to God. It's not like he doesn't already know what you're thinking. Tell him the truth. He can handle it. In fact, he welcomes it. God is a good father who wants to hear what his children are feeling. Even when God seems far away, you've got a choice. You can either let that feeling of abandonment drive you to God or away from God. And when the psalmists, over and over again, when they feel like God is distant, they always let it drive them to God. They say, God, where are you? Wake up, God. How long are you going to ignore me, God? Please, God, I need you. The, the sense of absence makes them all the more hungry for a sense of God's presence. And here's the really cool thing. When we let our emotions drive us to God, when we bring them to him, we find him reshaping those emotions. But when we bring them to God, he, he teaches us how to use those emotions, what they're for. And that's, that's what is really so valuable about the Psalms. The Psalms are a tutor for our emotions. They, they train us how to respond to and express any emotion we might feel. Uh, this is actually why I think it's so important for parents to read the Psalms with their children. Sometimes we think that with uh, kids that shielding them from negative experiences or, or keeping them away from sadness and pain is the best thing we can do for them. But it, it's actually more helpful to teach them how to express those feelings, those emotions, not just to other people, but to God. Uh, one of the things that Michelle and I found really helpful is this book. It's called Psalms for Young Children. It takes about 50 of the Psalms and it paraphrases them in about a paragraph in language that a preschool, preschooler can understand. And it doesn't just do the happy psalms. It, it actually does the laments. So here's what it says for this verse in Psalm 13. Sometimes when I'm very sad, I worry that you will forget about me, God. Or Psalm 70, another lament. Help me, God. I'm worried. Please hurry up. I know that you are strong. You are the only one who can help me. We've got a, a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and so we read this to them uh, before we go to bed because it teaches them. They're trying to figure out their emotions too. It gives them a way to bring those to God, and they know they don't have to keep anything from him. It, maybe if you have uh, young kids, you might want to pick this up in the bookstore and, and read one psalm a day to your kids as we go through this psalm series. I think that would be a great thing because it's important for all of us, young or old, to learn how to take our emotions and bring them to God. Lament is a cry of sorrow. But it's more than that. Let's keep reading in verse 3. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Here we see that lament is also a cry of protest. Uh, notice that the psalmist doesn't just accept his situation as a given. He says, God, you've got to do something about this. He's not just venting his feelings. He's, he's looking to have things change. 
He's saying, God, look and answer. Don't act like you can't see me. Don't ignore me when I'm talking to you. And he lays out the, the stakes that are involved. He says, give light to my eyes or I'm going to sleep in death. This is the real deal. We're, we're betting with real money. They're shooting real rounds. This is make or break, life or death. It's all on the line, God. And if you don't do something, it's not going to be pretty. It's actually kind of difficult to describe this because it almost sounds disrespectful when you talk about it. The, the psalmist is kind of getting in God's face saying, look, you, you've got to act here. You see, but that's what lament is. We look at our situation and, and we say, no, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not right. Lament is a refusal to settle for the way things are. It, it, it's a rebellion, a rejection against the status quo. It is a form of protest. In some ways, this isn't that different from what most of us do every day when we pray. When we go to God and we say, God, please do this. Please help me with that. We, we bring our request to God. The, the protest element of lament is just like that, but the volume is cranked up to 11. Uh, sometimes literally. Lament can get loud. Uh, when I need to lament, here's what I do. I get in my car, and I go drive and park in a, a semi-secluded place, and I lock the doors and make sure the windows are rolled up, and then I yell my prayers. I say, God, this is what I need. I am desperate. Help me. Sometimes that's what you got to do. You, you, don't, you, you don't filter it. You don't sugarcoat it. You just bring it to God. Uh, Romans 8, uh, the Apostle Paul says that lament is like groaning that's too deep for words. And so sometimes I, I'm in my car and I'm just going, oh, you, you got to bring that to God. Now, this is what it means for you. If you see a guy parked in a parking lot in his car and he's screaming his lungs out, do not call the cops. That's just your pastor being spiritual, Okay. Now, here's the, the important question with all of this. What, what's the line between good godly lament and just sort of being a whiner, you know? Like, there's some things that we know are really bad, and we should protest those. But there are other times when we're being selfish. Like, there's nothing really wrong, but we're just not getting our way, and so we're kind of complaining about it. Now, if you're asking this question, part of me wants to say, don't stress too much about that question. Because if you start second-guessing whether something is a legitimate concern or not, it might keep you from going to God about it. And, and so don't even ask that question if it's going to keep you from bringing your concern to God. Just take it to God, even if it's selfish, and he can help sort it out. The, the really important thing is for you to stay engaged with God about what your needs and your desires are. If you try to sort out your motives first, you might never come to God. But if you come to God, he can be the one to help you sort out your motives in prayer. Uh, tell him about it and process with him, whether it's selfish or it's legitimate. On the other hand, there's a part of me that wants to say, actually, we do need to figure out what is worthy of protest and what is not. Because uh, lament isn't about entitlement. It's about protesting real evil in the world. So here's the question that I ask. Does this look like the kingdom? Does this look like the kingdom? The situation I'm looking at, does it look like the justice and the peace of the kingdom of God? Does it look like the perfect world that God is going to bring about when Jesus returns? So as you're studying the teaching of Jesus and he's describing the kingdom of God, when you look around you, do you see what he's describing? You know, are the, the poor being given dignity? Are, are the powerful using their influence to serve rather than oppress? Are, are relationships being mended? Is forgiveness being offered? Are people embracing each other across lines of, of cultural and ethnic difference? Are our children being cared for? Are marriage vows being honored? Is evil being exposed and condemned? Are the humble being restored? 
Are, are the bodies of the sick being healed? Are the dead being raised to life? Well, no. Guess what? You've got something to protest. You've got something to oppose. It's not the way the world is supposed to be. It's not the world that God wants. So raise your voice and cry out about it. You, you see, lament is what God's people do when we see a gap between what God says he wants and what God allows to happen in the world. God says, I want peace, and he allows war and violence. And so we say, no, God, do something about it. God says, I want justice, and yet he allows oppression to happen. And so we say, no, God, do something about it. God says, I want life, and yet sickness and death run rampant. And we say, no, God, do something about it. Now, when we cry out like that, we, we don't always know how God's going to answer we, we can't always imagine what the right solution to the problem is. Uh, we may even find out that, that what we imagine is, is exactly wrong. But we can identify the problem. We can say, God, this is not how things should be. And we can protest it. Now again, some of you might be thinking, okay, wait a minute, I, I kind of understand that, but still, it feels off to me. Like It, it almost feels like it's a, a rebellion against God, like it's, 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 it's opposing God or something like that. Aren't, aren't we supposed to trust God? Aren't we supposed to give thanks and everything? Aren't we supposed to have some contentment? What, what's going on here? Let's keep reading in verse 5. Psalmist says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. See, what we see here is that lament is not just a cry of sorrow and a cry of protest. It's also a cry of trust. You see, this is the linchpin for understanding lament. If you don't get this, you're, you're going to misunderstand what we're doing when we cry in sorrow and protest. But we lament not because we're rebelling against God, but because we trust him. In fact, it's really hard to lament if you don't trust God. I, I mean, think about it this way. Who do you express your strongest emotions to? Like, who do you let see you when your, your anger is hot or your, your sadness is overwhelming? Who, who do you let see you weep? Who, who do you let be around you when your emotions are so strong you can hardly get the words out? Well, if you have a choice, only someone that's close to you, someone that you trust. You can't be free with your emotions with someone that you think is going to fire you or walk out on you or shame you because of them. With people like that, we're far more guarded. If you want to go to the really intense places, the really deep places, you've got to be with someone that you can trust. And that's what lament is. It's an expression of trust in God. In preparing for this message, I read a great book by a guy named Todd Billings. It's called Rejoicing in Lament. And Todd is a theology professor, and he was diagnosed with incurable cancer at the age of 39. He's still alive, but they know that this is going to end his life. And this book is not so much his story, but his reflections, his theological reflections on how he's processing it. And this is what he said about the relationship between trust and lament. He said, a hope and trust in God's promise is essential to maintaining a persistent prayer of lament. When a hopeful trust in God's promises is in short supply, it can feel like trying to run a race when you're short on oxygen. You slow down, you pant, you gasp for air. As strange as it sounds, the fact that the psalmist can bring anger, frustration, and protest to God is rooted in hope. If you don't hope that God is good and sovereign, you don't bother bringing your lament and thanksgiving to the Lord. I know for me, when I was going through a season of serious doubt, discovering lament was one of the major factors that kept me connected with God. 
Lament taught me what to do with my questions and my complaints. Uh, I discovered that one of the most helpful things to do was to wrestle with God in prayer. Because it's hard to get much closer to someone than when you're wrestling with them. If you want to wrestle someone, you've got to let them touch you. As we read Psalm 13, there's a couple of different ways we can understand sort of the flow of thought here. Uh, you can think of this as sort of a sequence of emotions. You know, first you experience sorrow, and then you cry out in protest, and eventually you move into having trust. Sort of a movement from one state of mind to the next. Uh, but I actually don't think it should be read like that as a sequence. I think that all three of these things should be experienced simultaneously. Uh, the experience of sorrow and protest and trust happen at the same time. The, the reason I think that is because the psalm is so short. It's six verses, and you can read it in less than a minute. I, I don't think you can get through this prayer and shift that quickly uh, through those different emotions. So what I think is all the emotions are kind of mixed up, swirling around together. And I think that's a, a really important thing. Uh, as followers of Christ, we are supposed to have emotionally complex spiritual lives. We are supposed to have emotionally complex spiritual lives. Uh, you might get the impression that if you're, you're faithful to Jesus, then your emotions are going to sort of trend towards peace and joy. You know, you can feel sorrow and anger, but eventually you've got to move out of those and just experience peace and joy. Uh, I actually don't think that this is how it works. I do think that we experience peace and joy. Uh, but I don't think we always leave behind the anger and the sorrow. You see, as long as we live in a world that's broken by sin, we're always going to have good reasons to cry out in sorrow, to cry out in anger. Uh, until the kingdom comes, sadness and anger at the state of the world is an appropriate response. Uh, these are not things that you sort of do once and move on from. They are a reoccurring presence in our lives. Uh, but at the same time, we don't only experience the sorrow and the anger. Sin and death are not the only or the final realities at play in the world. But we also get to see what God has done in Jesus. But we have the experience of a, a joyful relationship with God. We have assurance of forgiveness. We, we see the power of sin being broken in our lives. We, we see God at work in us and through us in the world. We've got the hope of a kingdom coming. We, we, have, we can look forward to a day when death is no more, when Jesus puts everything right again. And honestly, that, that feels great. But I think both of these things happen at the same time. Uh, Bible scholars call this tension uh, the already and the not yet. We already have some experience uh, of what salvation is like, but we do not have the experience of the fullness of it that's coming. And so we both weep and rejoice, and sometimes at the same time. That's actually how the Apostle Paul described his experience. He described his life as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The, the best, best picture I know of this is the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, the story is pretty famous. Uh, it's about Jesus as one of his best friends, a guy named Lazarus, who he raises from the dead. Now that's incredible, but for me the most important part of this is not about the raising of the dead. It's what happens right before this. When Jesus approaches the city where Lazarus is, Lazarus' sister comes running out to him. Martha comes running out to him, and she's angry. And she, she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's her protest. It's her lament. What does Jesus say? He says, your brother will live. I am the resurrection and the life. He gives her hope. He gives her something to be confident in, something to be joyful about. But what's interesting is this. As Jesus approaches the city, Lazarus' other sister comes out, Mary, and she says the exact same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does Jesus do? 
says that he was deeply troubled in his spirit. And the most you know, famous, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He breaks down. He weeps. He weeps for his friend Lazarus, who's had to experience death. He weeps for Mary and Martha that they've had to experience loss. He weeps at the reality of suffering and death in the world. He says this is not how it's supposed to be. He cries. He, he knows in 20 minutes, Lazarus is going to walk out of the tomb. He's going to be alive. They're going to be partying. But in that moment, he weeps with her. He cries with her. There is a mystery here. The, the, the complexity of what happens with, with sorrow and joy and hope and anger all happening in the mix of laments. Let let me circle back to the question that I asked before. What do you do when you're you're feeling sad and heavy? You walk into a worship service and we ask you to sing a a joyful song, a song of praise. But let me tell you what I do. As strange as it may sound, I actually, in my mind, turn the happy song into a song of lament. I, I, I sing the song that if it's about experiencing joy in God, I say, God, I'm singing these words, but guess what? They don't match my experience right now. I want them to. I long for this. I wish this were my experience. And and, and I say, and I know that one day it will be. This is not how it's supposed to be. One day I will experience the satisfaction in you. I will experience this. And so I I, I sing the song as a a form of defiant hope against my circumstances. It's not a naive hope. I, I don't pretend like everything's okay when it's not. I don't act like something is good when it's actually bad. I sing it as a song of what will be, even if I have to sing it through tears right now. What about the reverse situation? When you you come into a place and you're feeling good, life's going well at the moment, and you're invited to pray a lament, which is something that is going to happen when you come to Christ Community Church. We're going to do this in just a a couple of minutes here. Well, here's what I do. I I don't try to manufacture some sorrow that isn't there. Uh, What I do is I look around me, and I realize I'm a part of the body of Christ. And if one part suffers, we all suffer with them. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. And someone around me is hurting. And so as we're praying the lament, I lament in solidarity with hurting people around me. I, I, I sp- imagine specific people in my mind and what they're going through. And I pray that, I cry that song out for them. That's what I do. Let me finish off by asking this question. Where does the hope actually come from? Where does that trust actually come from? Look at verse 5 again. Psalmist says, I trust in your unfailing love. How do we know that God has a love that will never fail? Well, here's how I know. Because a week after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus faced his own death. He was arrested for crimes he didn't commit. He was tortured, he was hung on a cross, and he died with the words of a lament psalm on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's what was going on on the cross. Jesus was taking all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the shame from our lives onto himself. He was experiencing the suffering and the abandonment and the death that we deserved. And he did all of this to set us free from those things so that we could be saved. He he took all the consequences on himself so that he could take them off of us. Jesus loves us so great, so much, that he would give everything to save us. Who loves you more than someone who would die for you? 
When we trust in this, when we experience this, that's what makes lament possible. Why can we cry out in sorrow? Because on the cross, God shows us that he is deeply committed to us, that we can bring our pain to Jesus because he has already entered into our pain. We we don't have to clean ourselves up and get everything together before coming to him because we see that he accepts us just where we are. Uh, we, We can be emotionally vulnerable with him because he has been vulnerable for us. Well, why can we cry out in protest? Because on the cross, God shows us that he hates evil even more than we do. He hates evil enough to die to end it. He hates death enough to experience death to overcome it. We can protest evil because on the cross, God protested evil. And why can we cry out in trust and in hope? Because on the cross, God showed us that he has the power to actually do something about evil. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And three days later, he was alive. Jesus is not just a sympathetic friend who can listen to you in your pain. Jesus actually has the power to do something about your pain. Listen, lament is not a sign of weak faith. Lament is not rebellious or disrespectful to God. Lament is not a hopeless yelling out into the void where no one can hear you. Lament is a gift. It is the gift of joining with Jesus and crying out in sorrow and in protest and ultimately in trust in the God whose love never fails. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that when we cry out, no matter what we feel, you do actually hear us. And we know that you hear us because of what Jesus did. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.